0: Well, good evening everyone. Um, it's a great pleasure to see you here tonight. Um, I'm Lisa Pignanese, some of you already know, um, and I'm chair of the Foreign Museum, and I also sometimes write on subjects um, related to to uh, what we're going to be discussing this evening with Josh Cohen. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. And we're here to talk about his new book, um, which I highly recommend to you. It's called The Private Life. Um, and it's got the most wonderful cover. Um, but what you can't see is it also says, The Private Life, Why We Remain in the Dark. Um, it's very, very good. I reviewed it. And I hope tonight Josh is going to, to reveal more than I might have uh, managed to say in a very cut, curtailed review um, of the book in the Observer. Um, it's, J- Josh is a professor of literary theory, and, um, there's a lot of literature in this book used in very adroit and interesting ways. Um, he's also a practicing analyst, so of course there's a great deal of psychoanalysis in the book, and, um, again, used in ways which show us what is going on beneath and behind, and, uh, occluded by, uh, many things, including language. Um, but really what I want to do first of all and what we're going to do together is to look a little bit about the book, uh, look a little at the book, um, some of the ideas that play through it. Josh is going to read several passages to us as well and, and see how those take us further and then I hope you'll all take on the conversation. I also hope you'll then run downstairs and buy the book, which I know he'll be very happy to sign. <laughs> <laughs> Don't run too fast because these are dangerous stairs. Um, but But do buy it. It's very good. Okay. So the first thing I really want to ask you, Josh, is why focus on the private life now? Because this is not only a book about the private life. It's about the private life today. And, um, what's changed? What makes a difference from when Freud was lying on that couch behind me? I I find this slightly eerie because he actually died on this couch Mm. as opposed to the one downstairs where the patients lay. Um, So, sorry, we're we're sitting behind, um, in front of a
1: those. Feels (laughs) like doing something to his grave, doesn't it? I'm not quite sure. So, why the private life? I think I want to come at this as I suppose I try to do through the book in a kind of stereoscopic way, because there is a straightforward answer to the question. Um, I was invited... Um, really by granted to think about writing a book for a more general audience after writing a a short book on Freud for them. and Very good book, forgot to mention. I immediately, really the first association to the invitation was to think about this raging anxiety that seemed to be diffused Um, in the atmosphere, um, in the papers every morning, um, on our screens, um, and in public conversation. Um, And in particular, in the form of these twin anxieties about media intrusion and state surveillance. And we still see, at this moment, those two stories sort of um, playing tag with each other on the the front pages, um, day by day. So, on the one hand... It was a sense of my own identity as a psychoanalyst, as a, as a literature professor, somebody very interested in our own cultural moment, trying to speak to it and trying to be in tune with what's happening in the culture. On the other hand, and, and with the time, on the other hand, um, I always have the sense that you know to be an analyst is also to be in some sense out of time. Um, and to be at an oblique angle for the culture. So it struck me that both on and behind the couch, I had a sort of daily, almost ordinary experience of private life that felt very different to the ways actually that it was circulating in media discussion. That, That the ways in which our anxieties about privacy, the way in which privacy was actually being um, described in these debates was actually a very externalised one it's as though um, what need to be defended or what we needed to be more open about depending on where you stood was a kind of discrete, bounded region called privacy which we went into when we entered our bedrooms or which we went into when we um entered um, our bank account or which existed on our hard drive. Um, uh, I'll just pause for a second. Um, but there was a sense of a kind of binary being set up by the debate, in which private space was something that we left behind when we entered the public room. And I suppose, you know, Thinking about it at this moment, we're having a public discussion um, in a public institution about this public artefact in the public domain called a book. Um, and yet, I think what's most interesting about the experience is that it can't be reduced to what we can see and hear in it. Um, but that there are all kinds of raging dramas, no doubt, going on inside each one of us in this public space, some of which we'll be aware of, you know, the anxieties that we're fending off uh, or not about um, whether we left the oven on or whether our, you know, teenage children are having parties while we're out and so on. And and those raging dramas which psychoanalysis tells us we're not aware of. And I suppose the the sort of psychoanalytic icon, if you like, that comes to mind at this point is the slip, the Freudian slip, which... um, Uh, or the failed action, Um, which is the moment where the consensual illusion that the public self, the self on display, is the sum of us, collapses, which is why it's so funny and why it's so unsettling. Suddenly we become aware of another inhabiting... um, our space, the the space that we stand in or sit in, um, and intruding into the space of the self that we thought we knew. So um, I felt that that sense of the self as a a repository of secrets, I'm a bit suspicious of the word secrets, but... Um, as I talk about, but that, that, that sense of um, uh, of the self as in excess of what we can see and hear was being occluded in this um, in this sort of mainstream public debate about privacy. And so I suppose I wanted to to bring in that dimension.
0: All right. So so the, the, that dividing line, which ever, sh- ever shifted dividing line mm. between the private and public, um, is something that you don't think is quite there because we carry our private or indeed our unconscious selves with us wherever we go. And yet there's a particular ferocity to what's going on in the public sphere today in terms of exposure. It's not only the exposure through the NSA, but it's also people spying on us, but it's also people's voluntary self-exposure of what they consider to be the private. So it's as if you're constantly slipping on those the land of hills, as you, you know, put in your Facebook, um, mm. or you wander down the street as you open your book with, with your mobile, exposing both your slips and your um, love affairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Simultaneously. So, so, I mean, so do you think things have changed from Freud's day when we began the psychoanalytic paradigm in a in way which is something we need to think about in this area of privacy. It, it,
1: yes, in a way. I mean, in the sense that um, uh, the dividing line between private and public was a lot more rigid, and in, in a sense that's what the earliest case histories attested. The early um, case histories of, uh, well, mainly hysterical women um, are histories of um, women whose... If you like, public selves whose um, sanctioned, whose who's externally sanctioned ver- versions of themselves are collapsing and no longer sustainable. Um, and it's this sense of another self intruding and taking over um, and dispossessing these women of the selves they think they know um, that, that induces the crisis and in fact sends them to Freud. Um, I don't think that um, our predicament is one of um, an overly rigid dividing line between private and public. Um, it, it's something more to do with the dissolution of that line. On the, so, so, you know, on the one hand you've got the difference between a very rigid division and a very blurred distinction between the two. But there is also something I think that carries over from Freud's time, which is, if you like, the imperative to be the self um, that you show to the world, to coincide with the self that you show to the world. And this is, of course, you know, the um, the, the crisis for the um, early cases, Um, the hysterical women experience themselves as other to the face they show the world in a way that seems to them completely inexplicable, that they have no language for, and they have to get Freud to help find a language for. Um, But the rhetoric of coinciding with oneself for example, the reality TV contestants who perpetually talk about the being themselves, um, I think it's very much still with us today. Um, towards the end of the book, I've become a bit polemical about CBT, not about its, its efficacy, which is not something that I'm particularly concerned to discuss, but about the version of the self that it shows us. Because I think that from a psychoanalytic perspective, the problem with a behavioral model of the self is that its premise is that um, you should cons- coincide with, with the self that you appear to be on the surface. That in a sense you should get rid of the troublesome weight of this private life that lumbers around you the causing excesses. trouble. I mean, you, you, have a,
0: you quote Lydia Davis yes. rather a lot. She's not a writer I know very well. Uh, but you quote her to such great effect that the first thing I do is, I want to go out and buy it. Lydia Davis as well. Um, do you want to read us that passage yes, about walking I mean, out in disguise? What I'll do. Is, um, I thought maybe I'd um,
1: I'd I'd put it on screen. Um, no, no. It's <laughs> still I think
2: it's
1: yeah, there. It's. Um. So this is a short story, and maybe I'll just carry on a bit after that and yes, please my, my yeah. gloss on that, on the story and. and Go a little bit further. So, this is Lydia Davis' story, watching you from her collection um, uh, break it down. People did not know what she knew, that she was not really a woman, but a man, often a fat man, but more often, probably, an old man. The fact that she was an old man made it hard for her to be a young woman. It was hard for her to talk to a young man, for instance, though. The young man was clearly interested in her. She had to ask herself, why is this young man flirting with this old man? So, this is my gloss on the story. Through the prison of this strange encounter, we glimpse what we're prone either to forget too easily, or remember too self-consciously. Simply put, that our inner and outer selves don't coincide. That what we show the other is more disguise than disclosure even if we prefer it to be otherwise. The she of Davis's story inverts the anxiety of my party acquaintance. Where the latter shrank from the horror of my seeing what she concealed, Davis's she doesn't want the flirtatious young man to confuse what he sees with who she is. She renounces the very protection of appearances. My new acquaintance is, I'm I'm, I'm alluding to um, uh, an anecdote at the beginning of the book, Um, at which I meet somebody as a party who um, expresses this sort of spontaneous terror that I'm going to see right through her as soon as I say the word psychoanalyst. So she she of Davis's story renounces the very protection of appearances my new acquaintance is in horror of losing. Davis seems to be hinting at the unnoticed strangeness of being in the presence of someone else. You know who you are. And it seems as though all you have to do is convey that knowledge to the other person. But once you start talking or remain silent or offer some expression or gesture, what you know, say that you're a fat old man, fails to match up with what the other person perceives. You have language, verbal and non-verbal, to externalize your inner self. But that language, instead of conveying intact your inner self, your version of who you are, turns you against your will into someone else, perhaps someone entirely other than you know yourself to be. Your most private self, sorry, it's emblazoned on the back of the book, your most private self resists the best efforts, your own included, to bring it to light. It's not just poetry that's lost in translation. It's you too. While on the other hand, this picture of the private self as an internal alien hardly tallies with the popular notions of inner life circulating in our culture. We seem, on the contrary, to be living in an age of unprecedented intimacy with our private selves. Newspapers, magazines and the airwaves feed us with the varied entertainments of depression, marital breakdown, addiction, eating disorders, perversion and paranoia. The once-specialised vocabularies of psychiatry, psychotherapy and psychopharmacology have been absorbed into everyday speech. Lifestyle sections... Advice columns and chat shows extol the virtues of emotional openness. Hitherto unknown individuals invent their own celebrity by submitting their real private lives to the compulsive scrutiny of the TV audience. Social networking has created the conditions for the permanent broadcast of our internal and external lives. Meanwhile, increasingly mindful of the virtues of mental and emotional well-being in an economy that loses billions of pounds a year to, to depression and other forms of mental illness, corporations hire coaches to help their executives get in touch with their feelings. Never it would seem as public culture in all its forms made such a priority of the care and cultivation of the inner self. Private life seems to have moved out of its repressed dark and into its liberated golden age. Only here you stumble on a basic contradiction. A golden age is a long moment in the sun, Radiating its glories to all. It may be that such prolonged and intense expo- exposure to the light has blinded us to the obvious point. Placed in the sun, the private is no longer
0: private. Um, maybe I'll stop there. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, that's very interesting, and, and uh, it's also a wonderful gloss. This particular coat, uh, quote coat, quote, well coat? Quote so Sorry, slip, slip. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so many questions arise from that because the one thing I want to ask, for example, is the analyst a privileged pair of eyes or a privileged ear to look into this now different privacy, this 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 hidden privacy? Uh, one. And, and two, if we are actually putting into the public sphere all the things that were originally considered to be part of the secret domain and were the one-time subject, if you like, of, of psychoanalysis and, and the, the things that emerged from free association, what is it that emerges now um, since that is out in the public sphere? Mm-hmm. So double question. Maybe take the second one first and then the, provid, the perhaps privileged role of the analyst what that might mean in terms of language. Can I just ask you then to, to, to give me the second question? Okay, so... so, so I've forgotten. <laughs> no, the, the second question is really to do where... What is it that is now secret? What is it that is excessive? What is it that the conscious mind, which has put it into the public sphere, can no longer uh, seek What is it that comes into your analytic chamber?
1: Yes. Well, the basic premise of the book is that... The drive to drag everything into the light of public display, um, the drive for a kind of perfect transparency of the self and the world to force the world to reveal its secrets, that drive is a drive born of its own frustration, of its own impossibility, a sense, if you like, of its own failure. Um, because our wish to know everything, I think, is founded in the in the knowledge that we can't know everything. That there is always something, and that's the meaning of the subtitle of the book, that there's always something that's left behind. Um, uh, and that um, almost withdraws from our attempt to see it, so that the more furious, the more intense um, the light that we shine on it, the more, um, recondite, the more, um, uh, the very thing we want to see, um, withdraws itself into darkness. Um, For me, the the motif that runs, there's a a motif that runs through the book, which um, comes from Maurice Blanchot's reading of the Orpheus myth. Um, Orpheus, I'm sure you all know, um, enters into the underworld to rescue Eurydice, his uh, loved one, um, who's been consigned there by Hades. And Hades agrees to let Orpheus lead Eurydice out of the underworld on the condition that he not look at her as long as he's down there. And the end of the story, of course, is that just as they're emerging into the light of the upper world, Orpheus turns around and looks at her and she dissolves into nothingness. (coughs) He loses her. So, what is it that Orpheus really wants to see? Why can't he wait? Why can't he just wait until Eurydice is safely above ground? Because, I think there's an intuition, that the self that he sees above ground will not be the same as this nocturnal, subterranean self. And that's what he really wants to see. And his predicament is that That's the one wish that can't be fulfilled. And I see that wish and its frustration operating everywhere across contemporary culture. Um, In particular, the um, telephoto lens of the paparazzi strikes me always as a kind of expression of a drive to penetrate every internal recess of human experience. Um, And, of course, it always has to keep doing it because it hasn't found the thing that it wants to find. The reason it hasn't is because once it gets the picture, the picture is... Changes.
0: The picture changes. It's in the light.
1: Yeah, And so um, uh,
0: what we... You've just reminded me that you do a wonderful analysis, or riff, I was going to say, on Pamela Stevenson. I don't know if mm. any of you watch the late night um, in the analyst chair, effectively, mm. program that that she did. And, um, well, you describe the Josh, with these very programmatic interviews with celebrities about right. their inner lives.
1: Yeah. Um, I first talk in a sort of general way about the show, because... Most of the shows are quite baroque emotional ordeals in which, almost on cue really, the chosen celebrities reveal these, you know, very tormented inner histories. You know, um, abuse, uh, addiction, um, broken relationships, um, and there's a sort of extraordinary drama to what we're seeing. But for me, something disconcerting, I mean, it's an oxymoron, but something disconcertingly reassuring about these interviews. Um, Reassuring because they seem to produce the very script that we were looking for. And so they seem to be telling something, telling us something about our deepest, most occluded inner histories. And at the same time, they conform to a narrative which seems so familiar and um, uh, has something of the, um, uh, the repetitious quality of the bedtime story. And of course, these were bedtime stories. They were shown very late at night. And the one that I ended up remembering most and, and sort of liking most was the rather bizarre one, which I think was one of the first, with David Blunkett. And I don't know if anybody saw it, but it was this um, quite unintentionally comical joust in which... For those um, of you who
0: don't remember it, David Blunkett...
1: Yes. David Blunkett was indeed the, 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 uh, a long-time Home Secretary under Labour, Um uh, who was eventually um, uh, sort of hounded from office when uh, his affair with the publisher of the Spectator was um, was um, exposed, and, and of course he was blind, and he, and he was blind. So, so there are all these elements of his personal history, of course, that make him a fascinating object for um, for psychological inquiry and for personal revelation, but. Blunkett made a show of really not understanding the language of personal revelation. Um, he parried all of her empathetic hums, all of her penetrating questions, all of her um, insightful interpretations with a sort of benign chuckle. Um, this is as though he was indulging um, an overly inquisitive child. <laughs> That's very clever. I see where you're going with that. i yeah, never really thought about it that way. Um, and I suppose you could see it as an object lesson in emotional evasion. Um, uh, in the dangers of a lack of personal openness. Or you could see it as the one interview that really tells us something about psychic life which is that when you approach it it withdraws. It doesn't make itself available to you in the reassuring form of a story. This is why psychoanalysis takes a long time because the mind much as we might like it to doesn't yield itself up in a ready made package. Um, And this is, in a, in a way, brings us again to Freud's first experiences, where what he does is he goes to, um, to the women he's treating with a, a, a sort of ready-made questionnaire, a, a, a set of um, uh, inquiries, where both the questions and, in a way, the answers are circumscribed in advance, and. He's, his sort of supreme creative moment is a moment of dispossession. A, it, it, you know, not unlike what happens to Pamela Stevenson in, in, in the Blunkett interview, only he manages to use it. He manages to understand that the woman he's speaking to doesn't want to answer his questions. Um, and that if he's going to get anything out of her, He's going to have to let her mind speak in its own time and on its own terms, rather than trying to dictate the terms, to dictate the narrative um, uh, terms under which she reveals herself. Known in the trade as resistance.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, go back to my earlier question, uh, which which comes out of this, really. Um, why is it that the analyst is supposed to know what are the tools with which this this particular exploration of the unknown unknowns <laughs> if we want to call them that um, can be taken on i mean what are the tools with which it can be taken on well
1: one of the um something of the spirit, I suppose, of psychoanalytic work that I wanted to convey through the book and through the way of writing the book was that we're often asked to think about the psychoanalytic enterprise and, and psychoanalytic work as a form of mastery, um, in which the psychoanalyst is, and, and in a way, that anecdote that I was alluding to where the fancy is that I'm just going to see through people immediately that I meet them, that somehow um, uh, I've been initiated into you know a, a kind of secret ring as a, um, uh, you know a, a kind of cult um, in which the secrets of people's inner lives have, have been or the capacity to you know look into people's hearts and minds has somehow been vouchsafed. Um, now, that would be, of course, to set um, the analyst up in a kind of quasi-theological sovereign position, um, and yet the only tool, as far as you know, this, this is in Freud's papers on technique, the tool for listening to another person's unconscious. Is the analyst's unconscious? In other words, in order to have a, to listen to a private life, you need to have a private life, um, and that's one of the reasons why, um, maybe riskily in terms of the way that analytic culture works, you know, very much under the under the cover of anonymity. But I, I've woven a lot of personal stories into. Um, into the book, Um, which is not to suggest, of course, that all amnestic writing should start getting confessional or personal, but it's a way of saying that um, anything I can say about anybody else's subjective experience, anything I feel I can say about somebody else's unconscious life, comes out of having an unconscious life of my own. Um and wanting to use that to listen both to individuals and to a culture. Um, perhaps I could just read one of the, the shortest okay. of, of these. Um, uh,
0: how are we doing for time? Okay. Okay. Um, um, after a little bit of reading, we may then turn to you, so get your questions.
1: Good. Okay. So this is um, <clears throat> from the beginning of Chapter 3. An ordinary spring day, I was standing age seven, outside the front door of the family home, at the end of a school day, staring dreamily into one of the little bay trees that flanked the front door. The weather was so benignly neutral, I could imagine its purpose, whether I bothered to think about it at all, as being solely to protect my peace. I was one of those kids the outside world had to grossly intrude on before he noticed it was there. It wasn't an internal attitude well suited to the rigours of a North London prep school, where awareness is always the highest value, rendering the day a long, low-level assault of questions and insults and footballs, each laced with venomous irony or open hostility or hopeful expectation, to none of which I had any answers. But there are redeeming moments like this one, when my perpetual vulnerability to surprise seemed to yield its own secret, if ambiguous, reward. The sensible world around me, sheltered under the bright grey sky, is as changeless as ever. The roses continue to lean imploringly over the path, their heads the same faded peach as the paper in the guest toilet. The reassuringly still commerce of cars and pumps and attendants at the garage opposite, the dully warm yellow of the house brick, the fey mulberry trim of my school blazer. All the signs of my profane eternity are present and correct. Only because the world around me remains so eerily consistent can I receive the revelation that suddenly arrives, unbidden by me, unnoticed by anyone else. This, I hear myself saying in whatever language a boy of seven has at a moment like this. This is my head, my body, and therefore no one else. Is. These feelings and sensations, even this very thought, belong to a place closed to any and all others. If the current contents of my head were more remarkable, if they harboured some secret, outlaw feeling of love or hate or desire, the experience would be less so. But it's not so much that I have the secret, than that I am one. That I'm being suddenly revealed to myself as bottomless, boundless, teeming with terrors and joys and banalities accessible. Only to me. Of course, I can try to share them by telling you about them. But that will only make more apparent what I can't share. How very little you can know about the psychic and fleshly reality that is my private life. And what's more, I realise, noticing some vaguely familiar older kid staring straight ahead as he walks past the front gate. What's more, this is true for you. And for everyone else as well. Nothing has changed. The peripheral blur of my reflection in the oval mirror will flash up and disappear with the brown hiss of the doormat under my foot. The domestic perfume of frying onions, the plaintive yelling and chinking crockery, the painstakingly amassed collection of curling fruit stickers on my wardrobe door, all confirm the sameness of the world. But this confirmation that nothing has changed is somehow also confirmation that everything has, imperceptibly, yet totally, as though it's the very sameness of the world that brings out its difference. What ten minutes ago was a kind of paper knowledge, abstract and barely thought, is now etched into my insides. I, like everyone else, <coughs> am alone with myself. You and I look at each other from across an unbridgeable divide. Lunch chops, peanuts pocketbooks, a hair wash. It's an evening like any other, except, for some reason, I feel I could cry, although.
0: I, I love the way you integrate moments of your um, autobiography, your own life, into this book. But um, I have well, I have two, more, two more questions that I'd like to mm. ask, but I, I may let you have a go first. But I just one more now, which is that there's kind of an irony, is there not, um, in you, the analyst, talking about the private life and yet using the life of your patients in one way or another to make um, the points that you mm. need to make about the private life. And I've, I've, I've always been, you know, slightly hesitant about the way in which analysts use patients' lives, try and disguise them. Um, and you, with you, there's a double irony, because not only do you obviously use them, but probably you do disguise them. I don't know this... Um, and then you're actually talking about the fact of disguise. So so tell us a little bit about that process, that your autobiography, which is obviously yourself, is hidden from you like everyone else's mm-hmm. self, is hidden from them in part, um, and you like it that way. I mean, you think this is the right way to be, this, this rich mystery and complexity. Um, at the same time, um, you dip into patience and make points yes. through that and disguise it. So how does that work?
1: Well, I think it probably works differently for for different analysts. For me, at least writing this book, I wanted to be very clear that the clinical material I was using was not, in any sense, case history. That is, um, there is, I don't think, anything in the three clinical stories that that punctuate this book um, that suggests a sort of arc of inquiry, discovery, resolution. Um, They are really just snapshots of my sense of somebody's somebody's inner experience at a particular moment in time. Um, I think what I wanted to convey in writing about my patient's life, as, as I suppose I wanted through the book, is not what I know about their their internal lives, but how much they, in in, in what they tell me, they leave behind. How opaque um, and um, how opaque they are to me. Although I that that still puts it in a sort of straightforward binary relation between what you can know and what you can't know. It it seems to me that what's so interesting about clinical work is that what you can know about a person is so indissociable from what you can't know about them that um, what comes to light doesn't come to light in the form of a kind of um whole integrated revelation but as a kind of fragment that seems to have been chipped off um, uh, an experience that still remains quite
0: inaccessible I think we haven't mentioned this word and I think I'll just throw it now and then questions, please. Um, language. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you keep talking about snapshots, but in fact, in the book, not only are you writing about use of language, but you constantly mention the play of language in, in both Freudian way, but also Lacanian, um, sense that this is where the unconscious will, in some ways, manifest itself equally, um, only immediately perhaps to hide itself again because mm. it's the very nature of the way you speak. Um, but, but perhaps say something about language and then we'll... Yeah.
1: Um, well, um, I think there is a kind of fidelity that uh, I feel quite intensely and I suppose I wanted to convey in the book to um, an early Freud who... Um, finds in language all the different ways in which um, our private lives both reveal themselves but also occlude and conceal themselves. Um, so language not as an instrument of making transparent, of, of sort of simply, if you like, publishing oneself, making oneself public, but also a way of holding oneself back and, of course, as you say, disguising oneself. Um, I, I think where I depart from, you know, with not wanting to get too much into the sort of arcane detail of analytic theory, but um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of in the presence of a dis- distinguished Laplanche here, but um, uh, I think that I'm probably closer to the analyst Jean Laplanche than, than Lacan on the question of language, and I'll, I'll, I'll say why rather than just just throw out names uh, uh, Laplanche is, is skeptical of a sort of um, linguistic model of consciousness um, and in a way very he, he talks about um, language as vehicle of a process of translation um, and of of detranslation and retranslation of our unconscious life that our conscious life is a sort of mass of inchoate representations that tries to find perpetually new ways of expressing itself in language but what is so important about those translations and retranslations is that there's always something that doesn't get translated and uh, that that sort of um, residue that gets left behind in the process of translation is the life of the unconscious, um, as well as, as what does... I mean, it's not that none of it um, uh, carries forward, but just that it can it never carry forward whole.
0: Okay, questions from you? Or comments? Yes. Do stand up so Hi. we can hear you. I'm interested to know where you put,
1: what your views are about this NSA and GCHQ stuff and whether or not, you know, that could be seen as a sort of um, explosion of the Freudian paradigm or the paradox, you, you know, the psychoanalytic no. paradigm, where it's the most extreme and certain form whereby you, you can just sort of up what we take to be in life. And life. And yeah. At the end of Freud, why do we need Freud for the NSA? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Freud writ large. Have, have you
0: seen that wonderful cartoon that came out about the NSA? I, I wish I had it here. No. It says, Snoop while we snoop while you sleep. And I thought this is a perfect retranslation of the theory of dreams.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's lovely. Um, why do we need Freud if we've got the NSA? Um, I think because Freud probably had more theoretical self-consciousness than the NSA. Um, I think I'm good. Um, The project of sort of plundering the, um, the inner lives of our, you know, personal technological universe, universes um, is, yeah, as a sort of imperial project... It's premised on a kind of massive narcissistic self-confidence in the capacity of technologies to, to do this, to sort of get inside the guts of our subterranean lives. Um, whereas psychoanalysis for me from the beginning is a science and a process of inquiry that is premised on its own limits. Um, and so it has a sort of inhi- inbuilt inhibition of NSA epistemological imperialism. Um, it, it, um, it knows when it delves into, um, into the unconscious that it's going to be able to actually trawl up very little of the contents that, that it's seeking it's also different from the NSA of course in that um, very importantly it's intrusions and psychoanalysis certainly can be intrusive there's no question of that but it's intrusions are invited Um, uh, and they are also sort of limited and guided by, um, by the patient by what the patient chooses and doesn't choose um, to, to show and to reveal so that there is I think a play of, um, of inquiry and response of showing and telling in the analytic process which is exactly what's absent from the sort of fantasy of total surveillance that seems to be unearthed more and more in mm. the pages of the newspapers now so um, it would be nice to imagine that the NSA could be more properly psychoanalytic and, well, and, and less like our fantasy of how a psychoanalyst you know less if you like like that like that party guest to imagine you know whose version of the psychoanalyst is one who can you can see immediately just by looking.
0: But but another way of thinking about the NSA, of course, is that, you know, it's the the George Orwell, Big Brother scenario. Um, And what is it that that Big Brother is trying to take away? Well, it's your inner life. It's the fact that you have an inner life. What is it that Big Brother can't really take away, except in the totalitarian version of the nightmare, is the fact that you have an inner life. And... In the inner life is is constructed through concealment. So whatever it is that's hidden or, or, or unconscious or put underground um, is what the NSA can't do. It just urges you to do more and more of the hiding. Mm. Mm. Um, so your dreams go away too. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyhow, um, another question. Josh, however much is revealed by What degree do patients become aware that, as Freud said, they can never be masters of their own
1: destinies? Yeah. I think it varies. You know, I mean, in other words, I think there is probably as many answers to that as there are people in analysis. Um, But there's no question that one particular experience that I think every analyst has behind the couch is of somebody whose fantasy of being master of their own house, um, of knowing their own selves and their own future has, has sort of been traumatically shaken and often what happens is that I think this is particularly true of of men, actually, that I, that, that, that I see, that they come in and say, well, I've I've lost possession of this thing called my own self, and can you give it back to me, please? And can you tell me how exactly I should do that? Um, because I want to remaster my own house. Um, and, of course, one of the things that we don't do is, is sort of speak in theoretical formulations. So you can't really reply by saying, well, no, you're not going to do that. You can't tell them the conclusion at the outset. Um, and I think it's, it's almost part of uh, an intrinsic part of the ethics of psychoanalytic work, that whoever it is will have to find out for themselves in their own way um, and in their own time Um, that whatever they're going to do in this room that they're not going to do that they're not that is going to find um, the means by which um, they sort of re-enter some illusory full possession of themselves Um, they might make better friends with the fact that that isn't going to happen but you know the, the reason why psychoanalysis is interesting most of the time is because that always happens in a different way with every with every person that comes in.
0: Another question?
2: Do you think that historically psychoanalysis may have contributed unwittingly perhaps um, to a change in the relationship between public and private and it's given a language in which to um, present a self, a, a private history, uh, to others, uh, and I and I, I, I've been thinking previously that um, it, I may be wrong about this, but I have a sense that uh, a certain way of, of, of performing yourself in public and telling telling your story, if not it's the secrets, at least telling a story about yourself, emerges in American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, whether that's to do with the very early dominance of psychoanalysis or a version of psychoanalysis in America from the 20s onwards, where there was a there was a pattern, uh, and then you weren't an intellectual if you weren't in, at least you weren't a New York intellectual if you weren't in analysis, yes. uh, and writers and film script writers and playwrights, etc., uh, had all been periods of analysis. And they, and they had a kind of slightly pat set of models. of a version of, them, of themselves as a private life. Um, you know, I have two, two mini anecdotes that stick in my mind. One was a graduate student, and i come across this, uh, uh, another graduate student in a seminar, it was a seminar two and we both talked a lot, and then I bumped into him afterwards. he was American, he said, hey, we must meet up again, and you can tell me the story of your life. And I remember thinking, how impertinent that, that was. It? Why would I tell him the story of my life? Who do you think he was? And then not very long after when I graduated, and I was in my first year as a young lecturer, I was sitting in the Students' Union at, at the University of Warwick, and I was fascinated to hear two students speaking about a seminar, an English seminar, that had been They weren't my students. Two, two young women. One was saying very indignantly to her friend, and what's more, he really wanted to know what I felt. <laughs> that's what my response was. You know. and, and she was really quite indignant that the, the, the tutor had kind of perhaps been probing her to say, come on, what do you really feel about this, these lines of verse or something? And I remember thinking then, um, perhaps because I'd already, you know, I, I was a professional, so I'd learned to talk about states of feeling, not necessarily my own, but those in poems or in, in novels or whatever, so I had a, a kind of vocabulary and a, and a preparedness to do that. And she, she felt that, nevertheless, even though she must have been in the second or third year mm-hmm. in the journal's degree, um, <coughs> outraged and, uh, yes. that she had to bring forth her pro- most private or intimate feelings about some poem that had moved her. Uh, now it does seem to me that American style—I don't want to by any means say that's true of all Americans—but it's emerged out of areas of American culture seems to be, become generalised, you know, across at least the Anglo world. I think there's a French version. I know there's this French phrase in it to Pali Divan. You, you, talk about <laughs> it. you talk about the secrets of the couch um, to your friends. And um, I, it's certainly a change that I feel very uncomfortable with. i might to point to the gross examples of you know, what happens on television. People exhibit their pains and distresses and then their relatives brought on feeling <laughs> Right, yeah. that whole performance of the of Jerry Springer. And that's yeah. what, uh, and I'm puzzled by that. It's a huge cultural shift, and I, I find it deeply antipathetic. Mm. And Facebook is a, a milder version of what we're going to put all those things in a space where other people might. Um, mm. But I don't understand it really. But, and I'm just thinking about it as he was speaking about it as as uh, my uh, my first awareness of it as an American whether that had to do with the early dominance of, of psycho-speak and psycho-talk or maybe psycho-level in American culture before it gets more generalized into other cultures.
1: Yes, and I, I think, I think yeah, the, the, the circulation of a sort of easy, available <coughs> rhetoric for sort of systematizing the different levels of the inner life, um, uh, the ways in which, you know, evil fantasies or um, id wishes or whatever else um, sort of circulate a little too glibly in the culture but also I think um, the that that popular fantasy of um, analysis as penetrative, as somehow um, sort of reaching into and seizing the core of the inner self and For me, the the important figure in this regard is Winnicott, who I think is the only analyst to really acknowledge the kind of personal and cultural hatred that psychoanalysis has brought upon itself by imagining itself in this way as a sort of heroic conqueror of this hitherto inaccessible to of, of inner life. Um, it is one of the paradoxes that I find myself dealing with all the time, um, because for me, I mean, it's un- there's, there's something unquestionably true about it, you know, which is why I say psychoanalysis is in many ways it also strikes me as a project which is about saying, well, if there is an impulse to tell the story, if there is both an exhibitionistic but also a voyeuristic impulse, um, under what conditions can that impulse be exercised safely? And under what conditions can the shape of the inner life, in all its complexity, in all its contradictoriness, in all its ambiguity, in what way can that be given voice? Right. Which is which is I think something very very far from the universe of sort of ready-made um, uh, confessions, confessional narratives that we get on you know on Oprah or on Jer- Jeremy. Um, it's, it's something that's very far from the culture of sharing because, you know, a psychoanalytic process starts from the premise that it's very, very hard to share. And I think as soon as you start thinking that it's easy to share, um, you're in difficulties. You are immediately producing what the inner life is all about. But also, I think, um, you know, if, if, to the extent that psychoanalysis... I sort of aided and abetted the illusion that the inner life is easy to talk about. Um, that there's, there's a sort of level of doubt and resistance in me to it, which I think is quite valuable. Um, it, it's, 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 for me, it's, it's sort of much easier state in which to do work, that sense of self-doubt, um, questioning one's own motivations, rather than sort of believing that the light I want to shine is just a force for good. Uh, I mean, in response to the last question, um, almost certainly. But I, I don't think one needs to be a professor of literature to um, to feel that way. Um, I always sort of return to that statement of Freud that the poets and philosophers got there before me. I think, you know, it, in a way, it doesn't. Exist in um, that that quotation doesn't exist in definitive form. Um, uh, it's sort of different versions of it are scattered through the writings. But he says in one version, found it now. Have oh, they found it? Yeah. Have they? Because it was it was <coughs> on the occasion of his seventieth birthday, wasn't it? They couldn't say this. Oh gosh, well, I'd love to hear more about where where they found it. But um, uh, he, he says that yes, he he didn't um, discover the unconscious, but he was the person um uh who enabled it something like a scientific study. Um, what I think he's saying then is that the poets are in a relationship of greater inti- intimacy with the unconscious, that they speak its own language. Um, and that as soon as the analyst um, enters the field his, his language his premises his mode of inquiry has actually alienated him from the texture of the unconscious and I think you know this was a predicament that Freud never really resolved partly because he was always... He always deceived himself in terms of the model of an essentially 19th century positivist scientist. Um, And yet, he was intuitive enough, he was alive enough to what it was he was doing to see how much in the object of his inquiry defied the strictures of 19th century science. And so... That's why I think um, there's um, this sense that poets are never really superseded. Um, that it's the poets that lead us into the obscurity of the unconscious, and that if that's what we want to get close to then we need, if you like, to read the poets unadorned. Because as soon as you drag the contents of the unconscious into the light of psychoanalytic knowledge,
0: something is going to get lost. I think we're going to stop now, but I have one last question, unless there's one... And, And this is simply a joke question, but what is the difference between reading a patient or somebody who comes into your consulting room and reading a text like you do here, um, because you use a lot of your literature in, in psychoanalysis. Well, um,
1: I'm tempted to say, although it, it's an answer that I suppose could have all kinds of qualifications, but you know, I think we're, we're, we're finishing, so I'll, I'll just be quick about it. I think texts don't answer back. Um, uh, they of course, change in all kinds of ways through the process of reading, through the ways that they circulate in, in the minds and the ears of the different people listening to them. But um, uh, they their, their provocation is that they keep saying the same thing. You know, that, 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 that is that they don't actually change on the page. And and, and in a way, that's that's why they, they also do change. Um, whereas someone on a couch, um, you know, there's this... Well, they're never the same person from one session to the next, and, and even from one moment in the session to the next. Um... Uh, and what one is listening to is a kind of, I mean, in every session, I think, what what, what you listen to is a movement um, that at some point in 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 the history of the session, by which I mean it could be 40 minutes into the session, it could be an hour, an hour after the session's finished, and it could be eight years later. But at some point, um, the history of the session, the, 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 the movement of the session will reveal itself um, in all its its minute, or it might, it, you know, in all its minute transformations um, and subtle shifts. Um, I think, you know, I make that distinction, and I immediately feel a bit uncomfortable with it because I can I can see something quite similar happening with every text that I read. Um, but I think there is something about the sort of the live, fleshly, bodily reality of the human being um, that that um, that makes the difference.
0: Okay. Well. I'm sure Josh will make the difference by signing this book for you if you're like going to go downstairs and buy it now. But before that, let me just say thank you very much and, and uh, congratulations.